My mother was a woman of tremendous integrity. My mother was curious, sensitive, compassionate, honest, always there for us, unflappable, loyal, complicated. She is devoted, resilient, dazzling, giving, vivacious, extraordinary. It's so funny that when I switch languages, I switch completely the the word. The Greek word I, I would say is dikia, which is fair. So she's fair. She is just. And it's so strange because that was not the word that I would that I would use in English. Welcome to our Mothers Ourselves, a weekly conversation about one extraordinary mother. I'm Katie Hafner, and I'm your host. Athena Linos has been called the Anthony Fauci of Greece. She's an MD epidemiologist from a small village. Her dad was the town baker, and her mother, Eleni, was determined to give Athena the chance at academic success that she didn't have. For decades, Athena has been Greece's voice of calm and reason during public health crises. Athena is 68 now, and all of her four daughters went on to become successful in their own right. Natalia Linos, Athena's third-born daughter, is my guest today. Natalia is 38, and she's an epidemiologist like her mother. She's executive director of the FXB Center for Health and Human Rights at Harvard. She's also running for Congress in Massachusetts in the November election. This is a story of intergenerational determination on the part of two mothers to pay it forward for their daughters. Natalia, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about your mom. Thank you so much, Katie, of course. First, just out of curiosity, you were or weren't born in the United States? I was. And the funny story is that I was born in Cleveland, Ohio. My parents came to the U.S. after they finished their medical school in Greece. Um, My dad did his residency and my mom worked um, at the university. But by the time I was maybe 30 days old, my mom had gotten a position as an assistant professor at the university, at the medical school in Athens. So we moved back to Greece um, and actually, she moved on her own with three little kids, and my dad stayed behind to finish his year um, in the U.S. So she was, in many ways, a single mom with three kids under three when she moved back to to start her career in Greece. And she was born in Greece? She was born in Greece in a small village um, in the northern part of Greece called Karditsa. Uh, she's the daughter of a baker and she lived and grew up in the bakery. Upstairs was the home, and downstairs was the bakery. And so she has wonderful stories about her job, <laughs> counting money and her math skills, and how she became a perfect mathematician by, by doing the change from the age of five at the, at the bakery. You know, I know the story is about my mother, but my grandmother will probably feature because she was uh, part of growing up. She lived with us most of my childhood. Well, it's interesting you say that because one of the things that I want to try to do with the podcast is talk about intergenerational cycles of of parenting and particularly um, mothering. And so what do you remember about your mother's relationship with 
with her mother? Uh, it's a it's a wonderful question, and I do think that my mother got a lot of her strength about her determination from her mother. And uh, I was talking to her actually earlier today, uh, telling her that we would be speaking. And you know, one of the themes that my mother my mother grew up in Greece, you know, at a time when Greece was very patriarchal, um, where women did not really go to school. And she talked to me about her mother and how she had always felt that her father, so my mother's grandfather, had mistreated her mom because she was one of nine kids. Three were boys, six were girls. The three boys all got to go to middle school, to high school, and you know the smartest one went to medical school, but all the girls were pulled out of school in fifth grade. And my mother always talks about how that anger that her mom felt was what pushed her and allowed her to be who she was to to really, you know, feel that she could achieve what she wanted. Mm. And so um, during this patriarchal time in Greece, what, what decades are we talking about? So my mother grew up, she was born in uh, 51. And so in the 50s and 60s, um, she went to a school, you know, first grade, there were 100 kids in her class. So it was a single classroom with 100 kids. And she was Brilliant. My mom is very, very smart, but very understated, and and girls were just not expected to, to continue academically. So by middle school, the elementary school was mixed, girls and boys together. And by middle school, they would split them into girls' schools and boys' schools, and the boys' school had a lot more math and science, and the girls' school had a lot more ancient Greek and literature. And so my mom petitioned to go to the boys' school, um, and it was rejected, her petition to go to the boys' school. It was her and one other girl petitioned because they they wanted to, to study more science and more math. But it was her mother who, um, and this is the story I was trying to allude to before, her mother's feeling that it wasn't fair. that And, you know, coming from a very small village, this village um, of the... 200 students who graduated, only two went to medical school. At the same time of the girls, she said only 20% of the girls her age graduated from high school. So it was a very abnormal thing for her, not only to graduate, but also to be accepted at the medical school in Athens. So what do you think it was about your mother's mother that pushed and encouraged her? You know, I don't think I can can really know what it was. Um, you know, my mother explains it as a as a determination, as she felt that girls and boys should be treated equally. Um, she had uh, wanted herself. My grandmother had wanted to go to school, and she had been prevented because she was a girl. So it was kind of this um, maybe commitment to not doing that to her daughter. Um, and and it's interesting because that I think has traveled down. I I don't know how much uh, I should be sharing about my siblings, but all of them. Um, my sister Katerina is a full professor at Berkeley. My sister Eleni is a full professor at Stanford. Elizabeth is a professor at also at Berkeley at different programs. And, you know, I'm the executive director of a center at Harvard. Like, obviously, academia is something that was instilled in us um, and that there was some some value placed on on academic excellence. And I think that does start with my grandmother. And my mother obviously continued that. Um, but my grandmother was very quiet and understated. She didn't leave the house much. She had lost her husband, you know, when I was just two years old. So she was pretty young. And I don't know if you've seen pictures of Greece 
where old ladies wear all black. That was my grandmother. The sign of mourning when you lose your your spouse is that you wear black and she wore black for life. I had never seen my grandmother not wear black. Uh, She only left the house rarely just to go to church on Sundays. And then she was really just at home with us cooking and making sure we were studying and, you know, maybe going to the grocery store. You know, she was very homebound. And yet my mother was the one, you know, working uh, and was enabled. I mean, my mother was able to work outside the house, was able to be, you know, an epidemiologist was able to travel internationally and be an excellent, you know, professional in part because my grandmother was home. My grandmother was there when we got home from school and, you know, there was a uh, green beans on the table and, and lentil soup. Um, another thing you might want to know about Greece is in religious households and my, my household was quite religious. We uh, follow Lent. I am no longer, I, I do not follow um, that sort of, religious uh, diet anymore. But growing up, it was Wednesday and Fridays was lentil soup and bean soup. And then for 40 days before uh, Christmas, 50 days before Easter, 15 days in the summer. So my grandmother was just kind of always in the home doing what you would imagine a traditional women's role and yet encouraging her daughter to be out there to be studying. And also us, the the granddaughters, because we were four girls before a boy. So um, she must have been, my grandmother must have been a very strong woman to to both take on those roles, but not try to impose them on us in any way. I wanted to ask you if you know what it was like for your mother in medical school, given that it sounds like it was and in many ways still is a pretty sexist culture. And she graduated at the top of her class at the top medical school in Greece. Is that right? Yes, that is the top medical school. Now, uh, she was one of the top students. There must have been a, a series of challenges. She wasn't born and raised in Athens. She was probably more religious than the average student, uh, definitely less wealthy. Um, her mother had only gone to third grade, and that was probably not the case for other medical school students. So I'm sure my mother felt, um, maybe felt like she had a lot less going for her. My mom was just learning how to speak English. And she tells a story about when she came to Harvard and she was a student uh, of public health, of epidemiology. And her English is still uh, not, you know, she does not have a very good accent. Um, it has a strong Greek accent, but at the time I imagine her English was much worse. And she talks about how at Harvard, she had asked maybe on the first day of class, like, what does epidemiology mean? Epidemiology is a Greek word, but the professor was saying it with, you know, the American pr- pronunciation. And he- so what is it? Um, how is it pronounced in Greek? Epidemiologia. Epidemia. Epidemia means an epidemic. Ologia is like anything, biology, you know, the, the, the studies. So she obviously, you know, it's a Greek word and it's an American professor uh, saying epidemiology and she raises her hand and asks, what does that mean? Because it's her first time living in the US. She doesn't really speak English all that well. And he humiliated her. He said, if you don't know what that means, you shouldn't be here. Obviously, the professor was judging her because this is a foreign medical student. Uh, she doesn't speak English well. And he is telling her, you don't belong at Harvard. And she still talks about that humiliation. I think my mother has fought, um, has always felt like an underdog. And actually, 
that probably is what makes her fight for the underdogs. She has been one of the strongest uh, proponents on all sorts of social justice movements in Greece. Um, it's interesting because, uh, you know, we, we, myself, as well as my sister went and studied at the Harvard School of Public Health too. And, and was that guy still there? <laughs> I don't think he was still there. She actually didn't tell me who it was. And, you know, obviously, I don't have a Greek accent, I can pass. Um, I'm a you know, I'm a U.S. citizen by birth, so I don't have to feel those insecurities. But she told me that story, like never, never let anyone make you feel like you're not, you know, you're not good enough. Let's talk about your childhood in Athens and your mother and what you remember, your earliest memories of her, both as a working mother and as a mother mother. So the let me talk first about my working mother. And I remember I remember her traveling a lot. Maybe when I was in middle school, she did a, I mean, I think it was an amazing program. She uh, worked with a monastery in, in a part of Greece where women, again, the, the theme of sort of patriarchy is quite strong. Women were not getting uh, pap smears. They were not getting real sexual and reproductive health kind of services because husbands didn't really want their wives or fathers didn't want their daughters going to see male doctors. So she set up a, a program in a monastery so that the women basically could go get their care there. And so my mom was running that program and every month she would go for a week. And obviously as a child, I missed her, um, but there was a level of tremendous pride. And as a mother, mother, um, you know, she was strict. She was strict. She didn't allow us to have sleepovers. We weren't allowed to sleep over at people's homes. Um, I think she was worried about something happening to us. And that's very different from, you know, culture, American culture here. Sleepovers seem to be the norm, but in Greece, they weren't really the norm and she thought it was a risk. So we weren't allowed. We had curfews. Uh, we were going to church. We were quite conservative in some ways, but so liberal in other ways. She traveled with us. So, you know, I talked about her Greek travels, but she would have international conferences. And I remember when I was maybe 12 or 13, she was going to Florence for a trip. Um, she took me with her and she let me roam the city of Florence because I was really into art at the time. And she would treat us like an adult. I didn't speak Italian. She just said, you know, go, go explore the museums. Uh, but that level of, you know, she really believed in us. She believed that we were responsible and able well, it sounds like a bit of a disconnect because she was worried she wouldn't let you have sleepovers in Greece because she was worried about what might happen to you. But when you went to Florence, she let you wander all over the place. Yes, it was a, a little bit paradoxical, I would say, but she definitely instilled in us a level of confidence in our ability, um, but discipline also. I mean, I you know, as a parent myself, you know, it's, it's hard to balance, like, how, where do you give and where do you put rules and what? And I think in her mind, it probably was that, you know, Florence is a once in a lifetime opportunity, especially for someone like me, I was really into painting, I was thinking I would become an artist. So she maybe thought that the benefits outweighed the potential risks. And what did you understand as a little girl about what she did? And what, what did she do? <laughs> yeah, so my mother was is an epidemiologist. I didn't quite understand what she did. You know, uh, public health is around prevention. So one summer, I remember 
we went from island to island in Greece, uh, the whole family, and we were distributing pamphlets, encouraging tourists to put on sunscreen. And she would have town halls with, you know, the locals and talking about skin cancer. And I remember, you know, it was a lot of fun. But what exactly it meant, I wasn't sure. My older sister once joked that my mother was a doctor for for mice because she had visited her at the lab. Um, my dad, who was a surgeon, had much more of a concrete job that we could understand. We all, all the kids, had this sense that my mother was kind of the brains in the family. I can tell you a funny story. My brother, who is 10 years younger than me, when he was five, he was learning some very basic math. It was something like five plus two. And he, my mom was cooking and he kept on asking her to explain it to him. And she said, just go talk to your dad. And my brother turns and says, as if he'd know. So it was a very funny kind of the, the gender dynamics in our households were, um, there was a, a very strong matriarchy. My grandmother, my mom, the four girls, and then my dad and my brother were sort of left. So I definitely grew up in a feminist household. In Greece, that was not the norm. Was your father very accepting of the fact that she was viewed as the one with the brains in the family? He was. And also as a decision maker. I mean, my grandmother, so I mentioned that my mom would travel. So my dad would come home excited. He was the playful one. You know, he'd say, let's go, let's go to a movie. And then my grandmother would say, they haven't done their homework yet. They're not going anywhere. And he would be like, uh, okay, okay. <laughs> you know, like even within his household, he would sort of defer to my mom as number one and to my grandmother as number two. Actually, another funny story. My sister Eleni has married a, a gentleman called Pete. And uh, when Pete proposed to Eleni, he decided that he should also ask my father for Eleni's hand. You know, it's a traditional man asking uh, the father of the bride, you know, can I, you know, I love your daughter. Can I ask for her hand? So he called my father um, and my father picked up the phone and, and Pete says, you know, I love your daughter, Eleni. Is it okay? You know, I would like your permission, your blessings um, to marry her. And my father got nervous on the phone because he's not used to making decisions without my mom. And his response was, can I call you back, Pete, in five minutes? I need to discuss this with Athena. So it's a wonderful, you know, and my mom, of course, laughed at him and said, that was a rhetorical question. He wasn't actually asking you, they're getting married, call him back and say, of course, congratulations. But the fact that my father paused and wasn't even able to, you know, he felt that no decision in the house could be made without my mom's um, green light. Amazing. And do you um, do you know why she wanted to become an epidemiologist? You know, I'm not sure. I haven't asked her, but she finished medical school and she did her master's in public health. Um, and then she continued to do her PhD and do research. She did some cutting edge research in the US on rheumatoid arthritis. She was young and very successful. She loves numbers. I mean, if you talk to my mom, she goes to an opera house and my dad loves the opera and my mom really is not interested in the music. So she spends her time in the opera house counting the people in the room and creating different statistical combinations. How many women? How many men? How many over 60? How many children? And, and just creating ratios in her head. And that's what she says she does for the entire performance because She's not interested in the music, but she's loving creating these, you know, combinations. So my mom is uh, is different. So I could imagine that epidemiology just caught that love for numbers. And then she has a deep, 
deep, deep commitment to social justice and equity. And I think public health as compared to medicine is about everyone. Medicine is very individualistic. You know, you treat the patient, you see them get better, but public health is about, you know, what percent of the population is suffering and how can you make that percent a smaller percentage? And so uh, my mom is maybe a big picture thinker. Mm. And what do you think are the most, as you were growing up, were the most important values that she wanted to instill in you? I definitely think uh, public service and this idea of, of giving back and not, I think because she talked so much about feeling kind of inferior, humiliated by kind of the social structures. I mean, she is brilliant. She is so smart. Um, but she always felt that people were judging others. So there was um, a level of empathy. And I don't think it's surprising that um, my siblings were all in some way in public service, you know, and we, we do academic work, but we've always kind of had this in and out that, that the role of academia, the role of research is to make things better, that there is a purpose. So that was partly her religious side, I think, but also partly just a moral uh, very, very strong values around what is right and what is wrong. My mother, you know, we grew up in a pretty wealthy household, not very wealthy. Some Greeks are very, very wealthy, you know, the ship owners and, you know, the Onassis family that you hear about. But, you know, they were doctors, they were well off. Um, but every summer she sent us to camp. And it was a camp that cost $2 a day. Uh, it was the most affordable camp that was available. And it was mostly for to allow for all kids of all socioeconomic backgrounds to go. And, and it was a religious camp. So in part, she probably sent us there for the religious aspect. But more intentionally, she sent us there because she didn't want us to feel like we were different or better. So she always ensured that her children did not feel that they were better than others. And um, I don't know, I'm, I'm sort of rambling here because I haven't thought about that enough, but it has influenced, I think, how I'm raising my kids. So my kids, uh, my twins are three years old and my husband is uh, Lebanese-Palestinian. And I intentionally put the children in a, in a Jewish daycare to put our children in a space where there has to be a better uh, understanding across cultures and across kind of the the, the biggest, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict being one of them. I wanted my children who are, you know, half Palestinian or quarter Palestinian to know, to have good friends who are Jewish American and some Israeli American. Um, I think it, it is something that my mom did instill in us, this desire to to not be isolated in our bubble. My mother, during the economic crisis that Greece has just just barely recovered from and uh, sadly may be pushed back into because of COVID, my mother was very aware. She, she does a lot of different types of studies, but one of her biggest worries was food insecurity for children uh, because of the economic crisis. And she set up the biggest school feeding program for the country. And now with COVID, I mean, my mother again is thinking about who is most at risk, who is um, potentially going to to suffer the most. And, you know, the, the country has done superbly well. Um, Greece, uh, as compared to the U.S., acted much faster. They put in place um, social distancing measures. They closed down schools with only, you know, a few cases. Greece is considered one of the best examples in Europe. And my mother 
has been at the forefront. Now it's more as an external expert, and she's the calming voice. Um, yeah, yeah, I've heard that that she's the Anthony Fauci of Greece. It's not that she's the Anthony Fauci of Greece, but the public feels reassured by her. They trust her. They trust her expertise. Through you know many crises, she has been uh, on television and and you know speaking about public health for for decades. Um, she's also calm when people are panicked and scared. My mom is very understated. You know, she doesn't wear makeup. She's um, she's not very tall. She has striking blue eyes, which is very rare for a Greek woman, but she's very understated and very calm. She does not panic during crisis. So during COVID, she has been the voice of reason, calm. And what I'm most proud of is that she's also been the voice of equity. She has said, you know, we're doing really well. And she congratulates the government for taking action fast. But she's also called out the injustice of, for example, what's happening in refugee camps and uh, that there was not enough attention to, to the refugees and, and what their needs were. So my mother is both a calm and educated voice on COVID, but also a strong advocate of equity and an equitable response. So that's something I've been working on in the U.S. context. So it's been, you know, I'm an epidemiologist now too. So it's quite amazing to get on the phone with her and, and talk about ideas and talk about what are you doing on prisons? Because at, you know, at the center at Harvard, where I work, we were talking to the advocates around making sure that prisoners were being released if they weren't a threat because they were at risk if they stayed in prisons. And, you know, I would call my mom and say, what are you doing in Greece with the prisoners? And she said, you know, they're not doing enough. They're not doing enough. And I will speak to this. And it's been a wonderful, I mean, it's been such a difficult time, uh, COVID, but it's been wonderful for me now being in the same space on the same topic. Um, it's wonderful. Um, okay. I have two more questions for you. First of all, I'm just such a sucker for Greek food. What, what, what would your mother cook for you guys? Oh, so Greek food takes a very long time to make. And part of the anti, anti-sexist sort of upbringing was that she never taught us how to make Greek food because she thought that that was a waste of time. My grandmother would make delicious like dolma, which requires you to have vine leaves. You put... Uh, meat and rice, and you roll them up, and then you cook them for hours. The same with moussaka. So my grandmother was the one who would cook. My mom would do much faster meals, and she would basically say, "You know, you need to work. You need to do your homework. Don't spend the six hours that it takes, you know, to make a Greek meal." Um, so I'm grateful for her for not sort of instilling in us that you know the role of the woman is in the kitchen, but I'm also a little resentful that I actually don't know how to cook real Greek food. And then my other question is, what one word would you use to describe your mother? Um, persevering. Is that a word, Katie? <laughs> you know, we'll have to look it up. Let me, let me think one more second about the one word for her. And if there were a Greek word, what would it be? You know, it's so funny that when I switch languages, I switch completely the the word. And the Greek word I, I would say is dikia, which is fair. And it's so strange because that was not the word that I would that I would use in English. But I think it maybe dikiosini in Greek has a, a a stronger kind of like 
like a notion of fairness and justice. So Vikya, so she's fair. She is just, she is, you know, it captures a little bit of the values, but fair doesn't quite do it in English. That's funny. What's also interesting about that is that maybe when you think of her in English, her, her American persona, she was, it, she had to persevere. Yes, that is so interesting. But when I switched to my Greek, that isn't persevere. It was the fairness and the justice. And that is what she's been fighting for in terms of, you know, school, school feeding programs for the poorest Greeks and now COVID with an equity. And so this equity is what is, wow, that is very interesting. I didn't realize that language shifts your entire image of another person when you switch languages. Hmm. I can't resist asking you one more yes. question. What do you think she wants most for you? So I'm running for Congress and it's a last minute entrance because I really think that COVID is going to shape the future uh, in terms of if we get it right, we can save lives. We can actually do something about the deep inequities of this country. I think she wants to see me take on this public role. She has not said to me, what about your seven-year-old and your three-year-old twins? She has said, as soon as the borders open, I am there to take care of them, even though she works full-time. She is really committed to allowing me to become, you know, kind of a leader. And I think it's modeling, you know, my grandmother having been in our house and, and raised us. But my mother and my grandmother are very different women. My grandmother didn't have to give up a job in order to come and support my mom's career. Whereas my mom is sort of implying that she would give up her career to come and support mine, um, which obviously I will say no to, but she is that sense of um, giving, that sense of, I am here to basically support you. My you know, my career doesn't matter. It's, it's you, your career, and your sister's careers. Um, there's a, a tremendous generosity. But I think she wants, you know, I think she wants us to be happy, but she does link happiness to, you know, professional success. Smart. <laughs> well, this has been great. Thank you so much for uh, talking to me um, about your mom. Thank you so much, Katie. It was uh, a pleasure. It was a lot of fun, actually, to think through those questions and the answers. And that's it this week for Our Mothers Ourselves. Our theme music was composed and performed by Andrea Perry, and Paula Mangin is our artist-in-residence. I'm your host, Katie Hafner. Have a great week, and stay safe. Mm-hmm.